Good morning and welcome to the Dodds Monitoring Podcast. Each week our team of Dodds policy experts are bringing you a short 15 to 20 minute audio briefing on a range of subjects and sectors, helping you to understand some of the policy behind the politics. On Tuesday, the government published the long-awaited integrated review. Prime Minister Boris Johnson described the review as the largest of its kind since the Cold War, and putting it together couldn't have been any small feat. Covering security, defence, development and foreign policy, the review covers the government's assessment of what they see as being the major trends that will likely shape the national security and international environment from now up until 2030. Last week on the podcast, Dean heard from Laura and Abil on some of the expectations surrounding the review and what it could mean for defence and international development. If you haven't listened to that episode and you're interested in either topic, I would highly recommend it as it gives a really comprehensive overview of some of the shifting priorities that have featured in the Johnson government's Global Britain in the post-Brexit era. Today, however, we're going to be looking at some of the wider implications of the review for the environment and energy sector. I'm Alex Ming, and today I'm joined by Tessa Karina, Dodds Political Consultant for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and Michael Thorogood, Dodds Political Consultant for Energy and Climate. So, Tessa, coming to you first, can you tell us a bit about the integrated review from the climate perspective and what was announced? Yeah, sure, and thanks for having me, Alex. Um, So the integrated review is a comprehensive articulation of the UK's national security and international policy. And the government argued that it has come at a really important point for the UK, as the world has changed considerably since the 2015 Strategic Defence and Security Review. So in setting the scene for this, climate change and the environment haven't traditionally been associated with national security, but they are increasingly being seen as a risk that needs to be considered. And climate change also tends to be associated more with having an ethical foreign policy rather than one focused on national interests. Even yesterday, Foreign Secretary Dominic Robb told the Aspen Security Conference that it has never been plainer that the UK's raw national interest is inextricably bound up in tackling the international challenges that touch us all, including climate change. Now, all of this is important because the tangible effects of a a change in climate and subsequent change in ecosystems and natural disasters such as droughts, famine and disease have been argued to increase risks by amplifying displacement and the potential for conflict and will disproportionately affect vulnerable regions. It has been argued that climate change may also create a greater demand on the armed forces to provide humanitarian assistance. So this shift of viewing climate change as a threat to national security is quite an important one. In terms of the integrated review, the government has positioned climate change and biodiversity loss as the government's number one international priority, asserting that they would now begin an unprecedented programme of new investment, taking forward the government's 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution and helping the developing world with the UK's international climate finance. The review also predicts that through 2030, unsustainable patterns of production and consumption, population growth and technological developments will lead to further biodiversity loss as a result of land and sea use change, overexploitation, climate change, pollution and invasive alien species. The government have placed emphasis on leading international action to accelerate progress toward net zero emissions by 2050 and building global climate resilience, as well as leading efforts to reset the world's relationship with nature. In the review, they have firmly placed COP26 as key to this international cooperation and an area where they will seek commitments on finance for adaptation and resilience, nature-based solutions and a positive negotiated outcome which balances the interests of all the parties to the UNFCCC with more ambitious nationally determined contributions and long-term decarbonisation strategies. 
Further to this, the government has said they will ensure that all UK ODA is aligned to the Paris Agreement, promote agriculture that regenerates ecosystems and provides healthier and more sustainable food, and integrate biodiversity into economic decision making in response to the findings of the Dasgupta Review. And the government also asserted that the UK would remain at the centre of World Trade Organisation discussions on trade and the environment, exploring opportunities to liberalise environmental goods and services, mitigate carbon emissions, set standards and make progress towards a circular economy. Now, a few of these details on climate change are new announcements, but the review sought to more firmly place climate action at the top as a top priority for the Foreign Office, emphasising that climate change and biodiversity loss need to be tackled multilaterally as a collective challenge. Thanks, Tessa. It's interesting the way they've brought it into the integrated review in that case. I guess there's that combination of it serving in our own interest in terms of the environment, but I guess also that um, soft power influence, and especially if they're wanting to still have a table at some of these big international decision-making conferences and what have you. So um, what would you say some of the responses have been by the different relevant stakeholders? So I think generally commentators have been pleased that the government has made tackling climate change and biodiversity loss its top foreign policy priorities because of the threat that these both pose to lives and livelihoods globally. I think another key area that could at first glance be welcomed is the government's commitment to building and maintaining long-term relationships between the UK and China, as it's really important to continue to find ways to work with the largest emitters of greenhouse gases to promote an effective multilateral approach to stopping climate change. But on the point of China, there has been commentary that the the government is using climate change as an excuse to do nothing to hold China to account for human rights abusers. And this, coupled with the leaked documents of Dominic Raab stating that the UK should trade with states that do not meet human rights standards, has left some feeling quite uneasy. But that, I mean, that's a whole other topic of conversation in itself. Um, I think some campaigners feel that this emphasis by the government on climate change as a collective challenge loses weight through the reduction in aid spending to some of those communities more susceptible to its effects. For example, Bob Ward, who is Policy and Communications Director at the Grantham Research Institute, has said it is difficult to reconcile this vision for global Britain with the decision to make devastating cuts to the Global Challenges Fund due to, due to the cut in overseas aid. Other campaigners have accused the Prime Minister of hypocrisy and said the government's green rhetoric was at odds with many recent ministerial actions, including the support for the new coal mine, planning new gas-fired power stations and thousands of miles of roads. And alongside this, the UK is understood to have helped the former Australian Finance Minister, Matthias Cormann, be appointed head of the OECD group of rich countries, despite the fact he has frequently expressed hostility to climate action. So there are many commentators that think that the review fails to deliver the rounded vision needed to tackle some of the most pressing challenges that affect us all and should have been an opportunity to understand how many destabilising factors come together. There is a real feeling that the government's words don't match their actions and there are warnings that the government now has to translate its broad commitment to prioritising climate change on the international stage into tangible actions. So all eyes really will be on the UK as it hosts both the G7 and COP26 later this year and beyond. Thanks, Tessa. 
Yeah, I guess we can see from your answer just how complex the issue around the climate is, just in how it ends up coming into every single sector. So when the government have said that it's the primary aim in the integrated review, yeah, how that actually fares when trying to also have a new approach to trade in different areas like that. Right, so now, Michael, Tessa mentioned coal mines in her answer there. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about energy sector and coal mines. So looking more broadly at the UK's actions in the energy sector, what has some of the controversy been around um, the Cumbria coal mine? So the controversy really stems from the decision by Cumbria County Council to back plans for a new coal mine, the first deep coal mine in the UK for some 30 years um, in the northwest of England. So initially the plans were approved and the government did not intervene to stop them. But then last Friday, the government announced that a public inquiry will now be held to examine whether the controversial mine should be allowed to go ahead. And the community secretary, Robert Jenrick, said that the mine raised issues of more than local importance. So what this means is that the government is now essentially in control of the mine's fate rather than the local authorities. So while reaction to the mine has certainly been mixed, ultimately the weight of opinion has leaned strongly towards opposition. So supporters say that the mine could have propped up the UK steelmaking industry and actually saved on carbon emissions by reducing shipments of steel to the UK from Australia or North America. But a report by the Committee on Climate Change, the government's own climate advisers, concluded that the mine would give a negative impression of the UK's climate priorities ahead of COP26. So I suppose the most important question is, why does this really matter? Well, the timing is certainly unfortunate ahead of the UK's hosting of both the G7 and COP26 in Glasgow later this year. And given that the UK was the first nation to declare a climate emergency and has been world leading in setting its net zero ambitions, the mine has raised serious concerns over whether the UK's climate rhetoric does translate into action. For example, whereas the government's own advisers have said that the UK steel industry will need to use clean technologies by 2035 if it is to hit its net zero targets, operations in the Cumbria coal mine would have been allowed to continue until 2049, with some 85% of the coal likely to be exported. So while there are certainly two sides to this argument, you have to say that backing a new coal mine does not set a great precedent for climate leadership, and so the public inquiry will be welcomed by many. Thank you. And so with that in mind, where do you think this leaves the UK's credibility for climate leadership going into COP26 later this year? Well, this is a good question and an extremely important one. Um, And I think, first of all, it's important to ask, why does this really matter? Why does the UK's leadership credibility matter ahead of COP26? Well, it's probably worth briefly reflecting on why past climate conferences have succeeded or failed, because there is a clear trend that runs through all of them. And that is that events in the build up to the conference, and in particular, the environment for negotiation that the host country is able to foster, is highly indicative of the likely success of the summit itself. So let's have a brief look at a couple of examples. So first of all, the Copenhagen summit in 2009 fell well short of its objectives, and events in the build up to the conference make it pretty clear to see why. So first of all, before the summit took place, the Danish government put forward a draft political declaration to a a select group of what it called important countries to try and reach a private agreement, which of course alienated every country that was not on the list, including many of those most impacted by climate change. Then the chief Danish negotiator was sacked just weeks before the summit amid an alleged rift with the Danish prime minister, 
which created an aura of uncertainty and destroyed the atmosphere of trust that had been fostered with the delegations of many developing nations. And then finally, to make things worse, China's chief negotiator was barred by security for the first three days of the summit, which left the Chinese delegation feeling isolated and frustrated. So perhaps then it was inevitable that when the conference itself drew around, delegations were eager to talk, but they were reluctant to listen. And the summit ended up breaking into more bilateral or regional talks, rather than trying to reach an actual unified global agreement. By contrast, in 2015, when the world gathered in Paris for COP21, uh, negotiations started on a much better footing. So key to the signing of the Paris Accord was that all parties, industrialised and less developed, were all required to submit comprehensive, nationally determined contributions before the conference, which were essentially national climate change plans. This meant that much of the hard work and calculations had been done prior to the conference, and so the summit itself was more about overcoming the small areas of remaining division, such as on climate finance, rather than trying to figure out each other's negotiating position. The point being is that history shows that much of the work in reaching a climate agreement occurs long before anyone even sets foot in Glasgow. And so with only eight months to go, the UK's climate leadership really is pivotal. So anyway, to cut to the root of your question, where does this leave the UK's climate leadership? Well, really, it depends on who you ask, but let's perhaps begin with some of the more negative points. So as we have already mentioned, the Cumbria coal mine uh, is a very unwelcome distraction from the UK's world-leading ambitions on net zero. Then when you delve deeper, the withdrawal of funding from the government's flagship £1.5 billion Green Homes Grant, uh, which was notably absent in this month's budget, has raised further questions over whether the UK's strong rhetoric on climate action is being matched in practice. Uh, this month's budget was also equally notable for what was absent on the climate change front as much for what was included. Uh, and equally, as was mentioned earlier, cuts to international aid are unlikely to project the image of global Britain that is willing to listen to the needs of developing nations around the negotiating table. Uh, that said, a report in The Times just this morning found that the UK is halfway to its goal of being carbon neutral by 2050. And today, the Prime Minister will urge other nations to follow the UK's lead by announcing his ambition to reach global net zero within three decades, uh, with the establishment of a £72 billion per year programme to help poor countries decarbonise. What's more, many were pleasantly surprised, as we mentioned earlier, by uh, the outcomes of the integrated review. And Alok Sharma has been rallying partners around the world and recently met with the US climate envoy John Kerry, who in turn has been touring Europe to meet with allies. So where does that leave us going into COP? Well, it's important to note that Alok Sharma and John Kerry haven't been meeting allies to reach agreement among themselves. After all, the US is back in the Paris Accord and the Biden administration will most likely be aligned with the UK in Glasgow, as will much of Europe. Instead, they've been trying to develop a strategy to bring the rest of the world together in Glasgow, which, as past conferences show, really does matter. Yet, if there is one primary conclusion to draw, it should be that there is a lot of work still to be done before Glasgow. A UN report published at the end of February found that only 75 parties to the Paris Accord had submitted updated climate change plans by the end of 2020, accounting for just 30% of global emissions. And while the report found that a majority of nations had increased their ambition to reduce emissions, their combined efforts are only sufficient to reduce global emissions by 1% against 2010 levels, whereas the IPCC has indicated that to meet the 1.5 degree temperature goal set out in Paris requires an emission reduction of around 45%. 
This means that, frankly, we are very far away from a pathway that could meet the goals set out in Paris in 2015. And while it is certainly not too late to reverse this, it does show how much work there still is to be done before Glasgow, which is just eight months away. So while the UK's climate credibility is only one part of this equation, history shows that the ability of the host nation to set the foundations for global agreement really does matter. And going into COP26, there are certainly more questions hanging over the UK's commitment to climate action than the government would probably like. Thanks, Michael. That's really interesting. So yeah, I guess we'll see how much the discrepancies between the government's intents and actions actually bear an impact then on the political run-up to COP26. It's good to hear that there are some reports of some progress being made. And I guess, yeah, we'll see how much work actually ends up going into being able to foster collaboration between countries otherwise. Right, so thank you, Tessa and Michael, and I hope you all enjoyed the podcast today. If you're not already a Dodds Monitoring client and you think that you or your business could benefit from getting up-to-date, tailored and cutting-edge political intelligence, then you can request a free trial by emailing customer.service at doddsgroup.com or calling us on 0207 593 5500. Thank you. Bye.